0: You're listening to The Drew Marshall Show, Canada's most listened to spiritual talk back program. The devil went
1: down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sewing on a fiddle and playing it hot, and the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, Boy, let me tell you what, I guess you didn't know it, but I'm a fiddle player too. And if you'd care to take a dare, I'll make a bet with you. Now, you play pretty good fiddle, boy, but give the devil his due. I bet a fiddle of gold against your soul, because I think I'm better than you. The boy said, my name's Johnny, and it might be a sin, but I'll take your bet you're going to regret, because I'm the best as ever been. Johnny, rise up your bow and play your fiddle hard, because hell's broke loose in Georgia, and the devil deals the cards. And if you win, you get this shiny fiddle made of gold, but if you lose, the devil gets your soul.
0: Well, after 35 years of making records, over 50 releases, and more than $18 in sales in his latest book, Growing Up Country, What Makes Country Life Country, country recording artist Charlie Daniels has rounded up deeply personal stories from a roster of country greats, including Dolly Parton, Kix Brooks, Barbara Mandrell, Clint Black, Brenda Lee, Lee Greenwood, Toby Keith, Carrie Underwood, even former president Jimmy Carter, and rodeo champion Ty Murray have all shared from the heart in this unbelievable book. Listen, Charlie, how is, uh, how is Ty Murray actually doing these days? Do you, you get a chance to hang with him?
1: I haven't seen Ty in a while. I've run into him at the uh, last time the National Finals rodeo. Uh, he's, uh, I guess he's doing I saw his uh, lady the other night. I saw Jewel the other night. She says he's doing good. Oh, man.
0: You know, when I was a young lad, I was a huge fan of the rodeo circuit. I mean, I even went to rodeo camp for a week. Larry Mahan, Donnie Gay, uh, Larry Robinson, Roy Cooper, Charlie Sampson, all these guys were idols to me.
1: Yeah, they were there were great riders and it, and uh, riders and ropers. Of course, Roy was a world champion calf roper for a good little while. And they're they're a different breed. I mean, these guys that get on these two thousand pound bulls and these bucking horses, there it takes a lot of guts to do that.
0: Yeah, or or something's missing. Maybe they ate a few paint chips as a kid. You know, might have
1: dropped a couple of marbles somewhere. <laughs>
0: <laughs> kind of like goaltenders in hockey.
1: Yeah, oh, definitely.
0: Hey, tell us about the spread down there at uh, Twin Pines Ranch.
1: Well, it's not by Western standards. It's not very big. It's about 400 acres. We raise quarter horses, paint horses, and the little Corriente cattle, the cattle that they use for roping and bulldogging in the rodeos. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's just, it's home. It's I, I tell people when I leave Tennessee, I want to go to heaven. <laughs> when I move up that hill at Twin Pines Ranch, I want to. I want to move into imagining glory. <laughs>
0: now it's seventy, though. You're you're still not riding, are you?
1: Uh, you know, I I had to stop riding for a while because I had a bum knee. I had a uh, wore the cartilage out in my knee. Uh, it was kind of bone on bone. But I had an operation to replace my knee in January, so it's coming together real good. So I hope to get back on a horse here before very long.
0: My father just went in for a double knee replacement.
1: Ooh. He's 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 a man if he did that because I, I, with the with the problem I had with one I mean it's just you know it's it's just it takes a lot of rehab and stuff and that's, I'm sure it's going to be tough with two but he'll have them both done at the same time that's a yeah good.
0: get it out of the way you know yeah get out of the way uh, I was talking with Chuck Norris a little while back and he's uh, he's ranching down in Texas and he's working in the horse industry himself and uh, but he and I were both sort of complaining about aches and pains and uh, you know things that kind of prevent us from riding, but, I mean, neither of us are in our 70s.
1: Well, you know, riding is, is uh, I mean, I'm, I don't get on fresh horses. I don't get on anything that's going to buck me off or anything I think's going to buck me off, and, but uh, it's its a pleasure. I mean, it's something that uh, I enjoy. I enjoy riding down back through the woods on the place there and looking around. And uh, I, used to do, I used to rope, I used to team rope. I don't know if I'm going to get that far back into it or not, but I may, you know.
0: Were you a header or healer? I was a healer. Nice. Well, this is the first decent day of weather we've had up in this neck of the woods, so I am hopping on the horse, and i'm gone
1: well, I'll tell you what i kinda that's that's a wonderful way to spend the day. Horses are just they're they're the best i mean they're just you know they all have different personalities and uh, I think if you could get to know them uh, it, as you get to know them, you find out they're all just a little bit different, no two are exactly alike
0: yeah i I've got this uh five year old thoroughbred but uh, you know, that's only because I couldn't afford a bomb-proof quarter horse. Those things seem to get—they get more and more expensive, man. So you got to get these old trackies. But it, there's a connection with this horse. You know, once you have that bond, that connection, it doesn't matter what kind of horse it no, is.
1: No, no, that's for sure. It could
0: even be an Arabian. You know, you'd be all right.
1: I had a I had a walking horse, a big old uh, 17-hand walking horse. called Rebel. That uh, I just loved to ride. He just had great heart in him. So it's you know whatever you, whatever you enjoy riding.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, 1936, Wilmington, North Carolina, you're born into a loving Christian family. Right. Affectionate family. Lots of hugging.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, We had, that was, the, if you went to see somebody, you know, if you went to see them, especially the older folks, you didn't go in without hugging them. That came, that was like walking through the door. That was just a natural thing to do. Uh, I hugged all my grandmothers, all my aunts, and we just hugged everybody. Everybody hugged everybody else. <laughs> I think it's a great way to live, you know. There's nothing quite as healing as a hug, I think. I think uh, somebody putting arms around you and hugging you and, you know, like just showing showing affection is a, I don't know, it's just a great feeling. And I think it, uh, as I said, I think it has a healing effect.
0: But that's a rare story. I mean, even even though your dad was, he was, a you know, back in those days, men were men and oh, yeah. uh, big tough son of a gun and, and emotions weren't, you know, readily available. But here you were, you grown up in this loving Christian families where, where hugs kind of went all over the place.
1: You know, my granddaddy, my my mother's dad, was uh, probably the most man's man I have ever seen. Really, I've ever been around. Oh yeah, I mean, he was just he was born in 1895. He could build something. He could. He was a great hunter, fisherman. He was just a, a strong, you know, physically and, and mentally and spiritually. And he just he was kind of my, you know, my idol, if you will, growing up. I mean, and he was. Such a, I remember sitting on, in his lap, you know, when I was just a kid, uh, just a toddler, I guess, and I n- always felt safe around him. You know, it was like he was just—he was just a man's man. But I, I, he—I have seen him cry, hmm. and what I'm saying is that, you know, some people say, "Well, men don't cry." Well, they do. Real men do. I remember when we were in Iraq. I was behind. I was back behind the stage, and this guy walked in. That looked like the prototype of, you know, an older Rambo or something. I mean, this guy would look tough, like he looked like a he was carved out of a nail or something. I mean, this guy, <laughs> and he had the he had the the countenance to go with it in the whole nine yards. And this guy broke down and started crying. Wow. And I mean, the point being, the point I'm trying to make is there's there's you know, being a man, a real man involves a lot more than. Being able to pick up a couple hundred pounds and stick it up over your head hmm. or being somebody somebody's afraid of, that's not being a man, it's being a fool. But, it's you know, it's it's there's there's being a man has many facets to it, and one of them is a tender side and a hugging side. And uh, I knew lots of men in my life, my dad, I mean, you're real men, you know, my dad, my uncles. And, but they were all huggers. I mean, you know, it was like they all had a tender side to them. Any, any man that I really respect... Has, has has a tender side to them they have a they're able to you know to to feel uh, for people they're able to show pity they're able to show mercy they're able to 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 show compassion for people and uh that's what i consider to be a real man
0: would you say that your dad was maybe a, a spiritual mentor of yours as well or did he hold his spirituality close to his chest
1: no i mean I, my family was openly christian i yeah. mean there's there was you know there was i can never remember a time when i didn't believe it took me a long time to understand what uh what jesus christ did and why he came and what uh how it changed the covenant from the old covenant of animal sacrifice and the law to a a covenant of conscience uh, it took a long time for me to understand that. I, I knew everybody said, "Well, Jesus died for for your sins," but I didn't understand what that entailed. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things about the gospel message, I think that a lot of people have trouble with, is the simplicity of it. Because there's nothing you can do to attain salvation except accept it. And you know, it's so many people are some of the even some of the so-called religious people have a very pharisiacal attitude uh about you know following the law and i think everybody should try to do the very best they can i don't mean that at all but it's like you know i see people sometimes and i used to do this i used to be when i used to i was young and i used to come back coming on sunday morning and it was like i'd be you know all messed up drunk and and I'd get there, and I'd turn a TV set on, and church would come on. Mm. But, you know, it was, it was like everything was so beautiful. The music was so beautiful, and everybody was dressed up. And it was like I didn't relate to it. I mean, you know, a lot of people don't relate to that. It's like I don't know how to be a part of that. And that's a hard part to understand, you know, is, is, is somebody actually sits down and explains to you or you learn it for yourself that, you know, religion and salvation are two different things. Uh, religion can be satanic. it's a satanic religion. There's this kind of religion and that kind of religion. And salvation comes only from, you know, from Jesus Christ. And uh, the Bible says there's only one way to the Father, and that is through the Son. And it took me a long time to understand, you know, what that was. It's like a, a matter of, you know, like the Pharisees would... Take land away from widows well they didn't say that in the in the, in the torah they didn't say not to do it so it was okay and you know but they were they didn't live by their conscience they lived by the law and uh, of course when jesus came we lived by our conscience and what we know to be right and, you, know, you know whether the book says do it or don't do it, it it's uh, we still know if it's right or wrong
0: country recording artist charlie daniels with us here today on the show folks and Charlie, I guess church was was where the music first got in you.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. We had uh, always had. To, well, my family loved music. My dad loved to sing. I remember my maternal grandmother's house. Uh, people visited a lot back in the day, you know. Sure. Uh, and every Sunday afternoon, everybody come by to you know pay their respects. She had nine children, so children, grandchildren, friends, neighbors would gather up after dinner, which is what we call the midday meal. In North Carolina, Sunday dinner was, uh, you know, the meal we had after we got back from church. Would uh, every, people come to my grandmother's house? The yard would be full of cars, and they'd go in and visit and talk. And invariably, somebody would sit down at the old out of tune upright piano that sat in her house, and and everybody would gather around and start singing. Or most people would. My dad dearly loved that. Hmm. Just old songs and hymns and things, and, you know, uh, they they just love to get together and sing and harmonize and everything. So I came up with music. My dad didn't play anything. He played a little bit of, of, of a mouth heart, but he didn't actually, I didn't know anybody really in our family that close that played. But everybody loved music. Everybody loved the Grand Ole Opry. Everybody loved, you know, the, the, just the uh, the music, I mean, love music in church, and it was just such a. It's always been a big part of my life, even before I could play an instrument.
0: Well, you started playing guitar at fifteen, and I think maybe you picked up the fiddle around sixteen. Is that about right? That sounds about right. Yeah. What was What was that first band like back in high school? Do you think back and kind of cringe, or do you have a good laugh about it? I mean,
1: well, you know, when you're in your formative times, I mean, you, you don't expect to. I mean, we weren't we weren't great by any stretch of the imagination, but we. Uh, One guy, the guy that taught me to play, a guy named Russell Palmer, when we started, when we learned a few chords and we got to the point where we could actually put songs together and learn songs and learn new songs and uh, actually play them, we just fell in love with music. And we spent our time, I mean, you know, doing it. We'd we'd sit around and play. We'd we'd learn things. We'd listen to records and we'd listen to the radio. And, you know, we'd, we'd try to learn new songs and new chords and and. We just got so into it. I am not a natural musician. I have never been. I have to work a little harder to uh, to pick up things than a lot of musicians do. But uh, so uh, those times that I put in, those many, many hours that uh, when everybody else was gone to the ball game and I was sitting home with the fiddle, uh, you know, they... That's what it takes for me to do it, but I so much enjoyed it, and I so much loved it and like I say, I just totally fell in love with music when I first started started with it. Well, I know
0: Elvis was a big influence on everyone's life back in the day, and I know you co-wrote a song for him, but did you get much of a chance to work with him?
1: I never met Elvis never, I never did. I never even saw his show i just uh, I should have made a priority out of it back in the years, but you don't think about somebody like Elvis dying you know i I remember I was in a recording studio and and in Georgia, when my manager called me and told me Elvis had passed away. And it was almost hard to believe. It was like, what? Wow. Elvis Presley? And, you know, I just never put a priority on uh, meeting him. I did meet uh, Lisa Marie, hmm. his daughter. And I said, your dad did one of my songs. You know, I was a big, I was a big uh, fan. And uh, But I never got to tell him that. I wish I could have.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, Charlie Daniels, you've come a long way from... Uh... You know, you and Russell Palmer making 40 cents playing outside his dad's service station.
1: <laughs> I see you did your homework. <laughs> yeah, we did. That was kind of a, a, we we were sitting, when you first start playing, you know, you, you, you want to play for somebody. We did. We knew a couple of songs, you know, we went to play them. And his dad ran a little kind of a store there in Gulf, North Carolina, a little combination gas store and general store. And we were sitting down there with our instruments one Saturday night, and this car pulled up with two guys and two ladies in it. And one of the ladies, they came in, I guess, to get a soft drink or something. And one of the ladies said, will not you play us something? And Russell said, have you got any money?
0: <laughs>
1: the lady reached in her purse and pulled out four dimes and gave us two apiece, and we played for it. That's the first money I ever played. I'll never forget that. First money I ever made playing, I should
0: say. Yeah, yeah. And now you're on the new version of Hank Williams Jr.'s uh, Are You Ready for Some Football Tonight?
1: Well, I don't know if they're going to use that this year or not, but they did last year. And it, was it was last year, yeah. I'm a huge football fan. I love football, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm always ready for some football.
0: I'm trying to think. I'm trying to just wrap my head around this. From that time where you're out in front of the gas station, you know, making twenty cents a piece, and then you're 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 playing. Uh, are you ready for some football with Little Richard and Joe Perry of Aerosmith? <laughs> like, what is that?
1: Well, you know, it's just God being good to me. I've been, I've been blessed to be able to make a living in a business that I love, you know. And I would I, I, people ask a lot of times, well, how do you make it in the music business? And I guess it's the same just about any business. The first thing you got to do is, is, if you don't love it, don't do it. Hmm. If you can't, you got to find a profession you can put yourself into, and you're not going to put your whole self into something that you don't love. And you know even if it, a lot of the professions that uh like well my profession for instance there's there's a lot of chance taken i mean there's you know there's there's no safety net there when you first start out you don't have a you don't have a, a well even though there's a musician's union it's not the kind of union that's gonna support you when you're not working yeah. and there's no there's no benefits you know you've got to you gotta kind of stick your neck out a little bit and if you're not willing to do that, I would not advise anybody to get into the music business. If you're not willing, when you first start out, you know to to be able to wait it out. If you don't believe in yourself, or you're going to let somebody discourage you or something, you shouldn't even take that first step. Just to, and you know the, another thing too. There's nothing wrong with playing at a lounge on the Holiday Inn at the Holiday Inn on Friday night and Saturday night. You know, and some people are better off doing that. It's like you know, be a weekend musician and stay home. Don't go out and. And try it because if you don't love it, it'll break your heart. If you, if you, if you don't love it enough, then you're, you're not going to stick it out, if you're not going to, if you're not in for the long run, don't try it.
0: You know, some of the best advice I've heard has actually come from Simon on that uh, American Idol thing. Uh-huh. You know, he's saying he says straight up to people, you know, you're good, but you're not cut out for this. You know, you uh-huh. do need to, you do need to just maybe shoot a little lower.
1: Yeah, well, you know, that's like I said, there's nothing wrong with that. But then at the same time. Uh, you can't take somebody like like Simon's advice if you're gonna you you got to ignore his advice if you really want to make it in the music business. I've been told that uh, by some you know I have very prominent uh, music people that thought I'd never do anything, and but I wouldn't take their word for it. You know, it was like you know uh, I'm going to take my opinion to me instead of your opinion to me. Yeah. Uh, and, well,
0: that's, I mean, that's one thing Nashville is known for is, is opinion.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Everybody's got
0: one <laughs> uh you know I was down in Nashville a couple of years ago for the g m a week and uh that was just a weird scene man it was uh but I tell you what so many amazing artists play into like twelve or six people in front of them. I couldn't believe the talent that week, maybe it was just that week, maybe it's all the time, but in Nashville, I mean there's no crowds there's you know you are just there is so much talent and and hardly anybody sitting there listening to it
1: well, you know that's <laughs> What you got to do—that's one of the things I'm talking that you know you're you're talking about. You got to do what you got to do. Push through it. You never know who's in there. You know the thing about it is, if you got ten people there, and you can please eight of them, and they go out and tell eight more people or ten more people, and then that's that's how you build a following. Is you impress somebody, you impress the people that you're playing for. You take advantage of you know you don't have a thousand people sitting there, so you say, okay, I'm playing for these fifty. Uh, and I'm going to put on a show, and uh, I'm going to do the very best I can. I'm going to act like I got a full house. I got my, I, my biography is called Never Look at the Empty Seats, <laughs> and uh, of course I've been working on it for years, but I'm still living it, so I, I don't want to get it finished. <laughs> but it's it, you know it's it's like accentuate the positive. Look at the things. If you can't get what you want, take what you can get, and make what you want out of it. You know you got to you got to, to, to hang with the things that you do well and uh, remember that the, the people who bought the tickets are, no matter how many of them there is, if the house is full or if it's not half full or whatever it is, you owe them a show. Hmm. They paid money to see you. And if you forget that and say, well, I don't have much of a crowd tonight, I don't think I'm going to you know, really exert myself, then you're not going to be around very long. Yeah. you yeah. Gotta, you got to stick in there and be tough. you got to cowboy up and go for it.
0: Cowboy up. That's right. Hey, listen, how did you and Hazel meet?
1: We met in Tulsa, Oklahoma. uh, Back uh, I was going through; I was playing out there at a place, and uh, her girlfriend was dating my drummer. We uh, we kind of made a home in in Tulsa. We were in and out of there a lot. And one night, uh, she had this little blonde, this curvy little blonde, with her, and uh, easy. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she, uh, you know, we just kind of hit it off and started dating, and. First thing you know, we were married. So. Yeah,
0: and the next thing you know, you're shopping with her.
1: Yeah, well, oh, oh, mercy, don't that, that, that bring that up. <laughs> you know, shopping is a female sport. It's not a. It's not something that I enjoy. I walk in. and Have you got that in red? Yeah, give me three of them. I'll take it. I'm out of there. You know. And uh, of course, women. You know, they they love the. I think it's the act of shopping almost as much as it is the buying that they enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> I equate shopping with being about two cuts above getting a root canal.
0: Done. Oh heck yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, when you came out with the devil went down to Georgia, I thought that's what the song was about.
1: <laughs> shopping. <huh>? Yeah. <laughs> well, I found out the way to do it. What you do is you get you a really good book. And you go to the mall and you find a seat and you say, darn it, I'll see you when you get done. You Thank, said, you your book. Thank you very
0: much. Thank you very much. Give me
1: much. a call on the sale when you're ready to go. Uh
0: huh. Yep. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Double went down to Georgia, became a platinum single, topped both country and pop charts, won a Grammy Award, became an international phenomenon, earned three Country Music Association trophies, uh, became cornerstone of the urban cowboy movie soundtrack, propelled your Million Mile Reflections album to triple platinum sales. But But is it a shadow you'd rather not have to live under, Charlie? Because, I mean, you are so much more than The Devil Went Down to Georgia.
1: Well, we have, you know, that is just the best-known one that we do. It's like, uh, you, you know, we've got other songs that uh, that made the charts. as Legend of Wooly Swamp, a Long-Haired Country Boy in America. Uh, you know, there's a lot of songs. And plus, our heyday, actually, for radio play was back in the old FM days when they had the Freeform Stations, and they played a lot of album cuts. And we have album cuts that... Uh, you know, that uh, are still, you know, people still remember, and uh, we, although that's, if we went and did a show, and we did do that we went out of Georgia, people feel like they've been cheated, and they'd have a right to feel that way, but there still are quite a few other recognizable songs in our set.
0: But you're okay with the, with the continuation of, of this phenomenon? I mean, I was talking to Tony Orlando about the tie of yellow ribbon around the old oak tree, and... And, um, you know, there's days where you kind of go, oh, you know, come on. But the, but then you, you, you settle down into it and you go, hey, that is something that still touches people. Well, who am I here for? Am I here for myself or am I here for the people?
1: Absolutely. And that's the way you have to feel about it. But, you know, another thing, too, with us, we've been doing, uh, gosh, we'll do 100-some dates this year, and that's a pretty usual year for us except back in the day when we used to do 200. And we've been out here touring for a long time. And I've got a I've got a special section of our fan club we call the Century Club. When you have seen a hundred shows, I give you a belt buckle. <laughs> and you'd be surprised how many of those things I have out. Now that is a lot of shows to see.
0: Yeah, it is a
1: hundred shows. I mean, you you figure well, you could see you know ten for for ten years. You could see five for twenty years, or four for twenty five years, or. But I mean, you know, it's a lot of shows for people to see. And the point being. That is what this is all about, is that, you You know, they say you only go around once. Well, this is not true in the music business. You go back to the same place if you're going to be there a long time, as I have been. You're going to go back to the same place again and again and again, and you've got to do something to make those people want to come back and see you the next time you come back around. And, you know, that's what this is all about. Is like, you know, staying viable, staying up, staying entertaining, keeping a good band, and and you know, being something that people want to see. Now, when I walk on stage, and I see people sitting there smiling, you know, it's like, hey, I, we know we're going to have a good time tonight. And I love to, I love seeing that. I love seeing people, you know, in anticipation of, and really enjoying themselves. That's uh, that's what we're there for. We're there for their entertainment. The only reason we're on that stage is to make them happy. And when we've done that, we've done our job.
0: Well, thinking back on the Charlie Daniels Band. Uh... You know, those legendary coast-to-coast tours. Uh, I mean, back in the day, two drummers, twin guitars, a flamenco dancer, you know, often touring more than 250 days a year with more than a million miles in the road, transported by this convoy of buses and these sharp black tractor-trailer rigs. I mean, the traffic stopped as you guys kind of rolled by, you know. And the band had a horn section, backup singers, you had clog dancers, sometimes you had a gospel choir. Uh, you know, those days living that big, going that hard, also also tends to come with some ego traps and and maybe the pitfalls of the business. And how did you survive it, or did you?
1: Well, I did. I, I, you know, I can't see me in the light of of being a star. I don't see me that way. I don't see me as being. I'm Charlie Daniels, and everybody else is somebody else. I'm I'm Charlie Daniels. I'm one of of the people. I'm one of the I come from a blue-collar background. My mind operates on that level for the most part. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, that's what I am and what I feel like. And I, am, I feel extremely blessed to be able to do what I do. And I could not have done it without without God's blessings. I could not have, have accomplished uh, what I've accomplished. And I don't feel that – I never take that for granted Um I was talking to my manager a while ago. And we were talking about a, a guy in the music business that had done something fairly foolish, and he was saying, "You know what the, the, that business does to you is you get to where you feel like you can break the rules. You can park in the wrong place.
0: Yeah, you're above the law.
1: Yeah, you can walk on the grass. You you know that's not supposed. To, you can do things that other people can't do that you can do. But when you get to that point where you feel that way, you're in trouble because you're losing touch with your audience. You're losing touch with 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 mankind actually and you're putting yourself above everybody else because saying well I can do this you know I, been, other people this guy coming down the street here can't but I can't that's a dangerous dangerous attitude and it's taken a lot of people down uh, with it because you can't last long feeling that way because you can't break the rules the rules are made for you just like you're made for everybody else mm. and if you continue to do that then you know you're in trouble you're in trouble you're in trouble with yourself, and you don't, you can't continue down that path and have a career, or anything else for that matter, because it finally, it's going to finally get to you. It's finally, you know. It's, it's like, look at Elvis Presley. Uh, what a waste! I mean, that this guy who was the biggest star that I ever heard of, the, most, the biggest star certainly in my lifetime that I ever know of, that he's been dead since 1977, and he's still a huge star. But look how he died. And I think it gets to the point where people feel like people are afraid to approach you, that people would be afraid to go up and say, Elvis, you got a drug problem. You need to do something about it. I mean, you really need to do something about it. Let's get it done. Nobody would approach him like that. Nobody had the guts to walk up and say, hey, Elvis, you know, I love you, man, and and you're in trouble, and needs It's like nobody would do that, and that's what happens with 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 people that kind of put themselves that that they're separated from from everybody else. And I'm not saying Elvis was a you know rule breaker. I don't know, but I know he got in trouble with drugs, and it was like nobody would approach him, and that happens with people. If mm-hmm. people that that put themselves above above the law or above anything else and that they expect everybody else to kind of walk on eggshells around them and that's not right. It's wrong. It's wrong for yourself. It's wrong for your mental attitude. It's just wrong and it's it's never going to work out.
0: You know, uh, there's a fan of yours that uh, I've uh, come to know over the last year. His name is Ted DiBiase. He was the million dollar man in the WWF.
1: Well, I'm proud to know that. Yeah,
0: he's a fan of yours and, uh, you know, he and I have been talking about different things in life and, and the stuff that he went through Even just being broken, I mean, here he is, you know, top of his game. WWF, he's the million dollar man. He's thinking he's all that in a bag of chips. He's above the law, and and God just continued to be in relentless pursuit of this guy. You know, it's like it was like he was a he was a hound on his trail. He just would not let him go.
1: Well, thank God, God loves us enough to
0: do that. Well, yeah, yeah, that's right. The annual volunteer jam concert. Are they still going?
1: We're not doing them, at, at, we did them all in Nashville, uh, or in the Nashville area for many years. We're not doing them in the one area now. We're taking a cut-down version of it on the road. We're touring with two of our old friends, the Marshall Tucker Band and the Outlaws, and we're going to bring back Southern Jam, which is a kind of a shame that it ever got away. You know, Southern boys love to jam together. Mm. Just to get on stage and just, for somebody to start something, and everybody does their own particular Individual improvisation, improvisation, whatever word I'm looking for, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, I got it. About. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that it's it's just you know it it's uh, it's something that used to happen all the time, and it just don't you know it just don't happen anymore. It just don't it just don't uh, not like it did. So what we're gonna do? We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna bring all three bands back out on stage after the. Every, all three bands that played their said we're going to bring all three bands back out on stage and we're going to jam.
0: That's cool. That's very cool. Hey, just to interrupt here for a second. Did I just hear your cell phone go off?
1: Yeah, my cell phone went off. Did I? <laughs> I did I land just over here? I'm. I'm uh... I'm in South Dakota, and the cell phone service is very intermittent here. Yep. I usually do my, my uh, calls on my cell phone, but it was very undependable. So I'm in a hotel room.
0: And what song did it play, might I just it ask? It played Devil
1: We're Down in Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> that is I'll funny. admit it. I'll admit it. Is that egotistical? No,
0: no, I... no. That's funny, man. That is just, you know what that shows? That shows, like, from what I know about you and, and what I'm getting from this interview, you do not take yourself that seriously, do oh, you?
1: no. No, you can't. You can't. No, you can't take this up too seriously. You've got to, you know, you've got the certain things you got to be serious about, but yourself. Ain't
0: one. <laughs> no, that's it. That's it. Hey, tell us about uh, the time you spent with Bob Dylan.
1: Bob Dylan uh, came to town in, I'm trying to think the year now, so 1969, 70, somewhere along there, to record an album that turned out to be Nashville Skyline. And Bob Johnston, my friend, was producing. Bob's the guy that got me to come to Nashville. And I was playing in a in a club. I was making a living playing at a nightclub six nights a week. And when I found out Dylan was coming to town, I told Bob, uh, you know, I said, hey man, let me play on one Dylan session so I can always say I want I got to play on one. <laughs> so he put me on the one, uh, the early session. And I was packing my guitars up, getting ready to go to my club gig. And Bob Dylan asked Bob Johnson, "Where is he going?" He said, "He's leaving. I've got a, another guitar player coming." And he said, "I don't want another guitar player. I want him." Nice. And it just was such a shot in the arm to me because I I played different from everybody in Nashville. I didn't play like, you know, like uh, everybody else played at that time. And well,
0: you you got criticized for playing too loud.
1: I was too loud. I was too bluesy. I was too, you know. I mean, I was not. I'm not really a great recording musician, but it worked with uh, Bob Dylan and uh, some of the people that came to town. Leonard Cohen, Al Cooper. Uh, you know some of the people that uh, that I fit in with, and and Bob Bob Dylan did me such a great favor when he said that, and it gave me confidence, and you know made me uh, was a, one of one of the bricks in the road to to me walking toward having some success.
0: Well, I just found out I'm uh, I'm heading up to a Bob Dylan concert in a couple of months up here in, near Toronto. My first Bob Dylan concert. Looking quite forward to it. Always interested in the man, especially hearing some stories behind the scenes about his journey of faith.
1: Well, he is an anomaly. I mean, there's nobody else like Bob Dylan. And I heard an interview he was doing with, I think it was 60 Minutes sometime back, and he said something to the effect of, I don't know where those songs came from. Oh, I, I,
0: don't, I remember that interview. Remember that? I mean, yeah. it's
1: like, I can't, he's, I don't write that way anymore, you know? And he was, you know, doing this thing about the darkness at the break of the day, the, you know, yep. some of this stuff. And I used to say I used to compare him, I have at times, to William Shakespeare, not because he used the flowery language or anything, but that Shakespeare did. But I've always Shakespeare's always struck me as being so unique in the way he used the English language. Bob Dylan is the same way in his own way. He's very unique hmm. in the way that he uses the language and, and puts phrases and thoughts together that you would never nobody else would ever think of. So he's just a very unusual person and i'm glad he's still out here doing it
0: yeah no it's going to be great to go see him i want to run by just real quickly a couple of names and i want you to maybe just give us your first impression when i say the name to you okay you ready yeah johnny cash
1: a giant uh of a man a giant uh, of of a person and also a giant of an artist who left an indelible footprint across uh, uh, country music, American music, not just country music, but American music. uh, A man that was nice, that had a great heart, that uh, I was very, very honored to to get to know uh, to some extent, and uh, somebody who who will always be
0: remembered. I resonate so much with his journey of faith because uh, as hard as I try to wrap my head around the successful, whatever that means, spiritual life, I mean, I just keep... It's like two steps forward, you know, three steps back sometimes. It's just...
1: It's always that way with with some of us. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's unbelievable. You know, anyway. Uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan.
1: Probably... You know, I've listened in the last several years probably to Stevie Ray more than any other one artist. Uh, Very, very unique guitar player. Uh, Just... Stevie did things that uh, just he. For instance, he he put real heavy gauge strings on his guitar. How he ever bent them? I've I've been playing guitar for over fifty years now, and I cannot imagine how Stevie Ray bent the gauge of strings that he was able to bend them and 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 play on the gauge of strings that he played on. But that was that was what he did. That's what the, that's what it took to get the sound that he wanted. He also. I stood stage right one night and watched him play, and he had—I cannot tell you how many amplifiers he had hooked up together. I don't even know there was just a whole <laughs> stack of them over there, but it was so loud he had to have a plexiglass plate in front of him uh, to, you know, to keep the sound from just deafening everybody out front. But he had—he did these unique things in his sound, but his—that talent that this man had for playing the blues—I mean, it just—it was just absolutely floors me and he's still to this day i can listen to stevie Ray Vaughan album and uh and you know it just it just blows me away uh we had him at a couple of volunteer jams and you know he's just he's just very unique very unique guy
0: james brown
1: oh james brown we had james brown at volunteer jam one time james <laughs> gosh he was you know he invented Modern R&B music, I guess you just about have to say, because he, he started, James Brown, the famous Flames, they talked about, they used to call him the hardest working man in show business, and he was. I mean, he, I first saw him in Tulsa, Oklahoma back, gosh, in the 60s, and this guy, i never seen anybody work as hard as he did. He just threw his whole self into dancing and singing and entertaining and you know, he'd do this thing—this uh, thing he was famous for, like he was about to pass out, and somebody yep. come up and put a robe on him, he'd throw it off and get back up and go back again. I mean, he was just one of the greatest entertainers I've ever seen, and uh, very, very much an innovator.
0: I had the privilege of interviewing James Brown uh, a few months before his death, and it was the—turned uh, out to be the, the longest interview he'd ever given.
1: I'll be darned. Well, I had the privilege of getting him and Roy Acuff together one time. Oh, man. <laughs> we were, we were, they were doing a benefit for a John R. at the Opera House, and, and Mr. Acuff lived right close to there, and he used to walk over there once in a while. And it was like, you know, hey, Mr. Acuff, here's one side of my musical heritage, and here's another side. You know, it's like James Brown <laughs> Roy Acuff. It was great to, to see them together.
0: That's cool, man. That is very cool. Well, final name I'll throw at you a guest, another guest we've had on our show, B.B. Uh, B. King.
1: The best. I mean, just you know, this guy. I remember BB B. King from from many, many years ago uh, when he he was uh, you know he was uh, used to play him on the radio. He had a song called "On My Word of Honor." And it was kind of a pop sort of thing for him, but he always had them blues. And he's the guy that brought the blues, basically the electric blues, out of the Delta and put it up in the front of the you know. In, in, in the front of the music business, he's the guy that everybody wanted to play like uh, back in the 60s. B.B. Uh, B. King was, people were taking set, uh, 33 and a third records and slowing them down to try to pick his licks up and stuff. But that feel that uh, Stevie Ray and B.B. B. B. and Albert King and some of the people have for the blues is just almost something you've, you've almost got to be born with to do it right. And, and everybody, he was everybody, every guitar player's idol. Uh, Baby King.
0: Well, we are talking with the one and only Charlie Daniels, a country recording artist extraordinaire. And uh, Charlie, in 1990, "Simple Man" became a huge hit for you. Mm-hmm. But you took a little heat in the talk show circuit for a few lines in that song.
1: Well, I don't particularly. I mean, yeah, that that, that don't bother me. <laughs> I mean, you, you can't you can't please everybody. And you know, if, 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 I hate political correctness. I totally despise it. I think it's just. It's just symbols, you know. It's no, there's no, no meat there. It's just uh, you, you, everybody pats everybody on the back and says, "Oh, look, we feel this way about something," but you don't do anything about it. It's just like in our country right now. Uh, we've got uh, a bunch of uh, Nancy Pelosi and, and uh, Harry Reid, who are the leaders of the Senate and the Congress. Uh, you know, they're blasting what's going on in the Iraqi war. That's all well and good. But come up with a, you know, don't just blast it. Come up with a plan to do something about it. And that's what political correctness is. It's just, It's like uh, I heard it described as symbolism over substance. And it's just, you know, I can't stand that sort of thing. And I speak very plainly. I come from a blue-collar background, my vernacular for the most part, is fairly blue-collar. And I, when I speak, I speak. I want people to understand what I'm saying. So I said, you know, take them out in the swamp and put them on a, you know, time to a stump, let the rattlers and the bugs and the alligators do the rest. If that's too strong or language, you know, for somebody, then they should listen to it.
0: Because... Oh, man. You should write greeting cards or, or Valentine's Day cards. Use those same lyrics in that. We need some non-politically correct Valentine's Absolutely. Day cards written by men. <laughs> I'm with you, buddy. That would be something sweet. Well, listen, does the body of Christ need an amputation? Now, this is a question we're going to ask on our show today. Does the body of Christ need an amputation? What I'm talking about is this fellow named Reverend Fred Phelps from the Westboro Baptist Church. Have you ever heard of him?
1: Yeah, I've seen seen him. I was... I forget where we were. My wife and myself had rented a car. we were on the road, and, and we drove by one, and I saw all these people with all these signs.
0: God hates that bags has
1: and... nothing to do with Christianity. I think these people are disgusting. Yeah, I think that they're, you know, they're, you know, they go around telling everybody you're going to burn in hell. They can't send anybody to hell. They can't send anybody to heaven. Christ Jesus was about love and forgiveness. That's a cornerstone of Christianity. It's forgiveness and love, and God does not hate anybody. God sent his son to die for everybody.
0: Okay, but hold on. But, Charlie, you take those lyrics that from simple man, and you jive that with what you just said, and some people are going to look at that and see a contradiction. You know, just take them rapist killers, child abusers out in the swamp, put them on their knees, tie them to a stump, let the rattlers and bugs and the alligators do the rest, and then, and then we go on. You know, as Jesus people, we go on about the love and forgiveness.
1: I haven't told anybody they're going to burn in hell. Yeah. I haven't got it when any time I get in front of a TV camera or whatever, I am a loving, forgiving sort of guy, you know. I mean, it's not, uh, that's, uh, that's one side of my personality, and I don't believe in doing anything to anybody without due process of law. But it is a song, and it does get an attitude across. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to do.
0: Yeah. Well, this, this uh, Fred Phelps and his gang, they are planning on protesting at the services for those killed on Monday at Virginia Tech.
1: Well, you know what? It just goes to show you what a bunch of idiots these people are. They were also going to demonstrate at the Amish funerals for the little girls, saying something like, your daughters were whores and they're burning in hell. Now, anybody that does that, that that has nothing whatsoever to do with Christianity. These people are disgusting. I, I wish people would stop thinking that they represented Christianity because well that's the only thing that a lot of the major media waits for is some idiot like that to get up and do something wrong that they can hold it up to ridicule and these people deserve to be ridiculed.
0: But Charlie, what should we do about it? As as you know, the worldwide church shouldn't we do something about these whack we jobs? We should
1: we should deny them. We should deny them every chance that you get. You got to form there. You know they don't represent you, do they? Certainly no. they don't. No. They don't represent me. They don't represent ninety nine and nine hundred percent of the of, of the Christians in this country they don't represent anybody but themselves yeah. that's all they represent, and they're so full of hate that is hate
0: yeah your scripture comes to mind is uh, if your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it away i am right. thinking about doing something like that I don't know what well you? you know i would,
1: i don't <laughs> of course basically these two ladies I understand are lawyers, two of the ladies in the in the outfit and they are very up on their civil rights uh law uh very up to date on it and if you know, if you don't, uh, if things aren't up the hall, when you try to run them off a property or something, they can turn around and sue you. Yeah. So you know, it's that that's the it's kind of a conundrum in a way. But these, I, I deny these people. I deny that they have anything to do with the kind of Christianity that 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 I know and that I try to practice. I would never get out with a sign and say that God hates anybody. That is a total and complete lie, either their line or the Bible's line. And I ain't found a line in the Bible yet. So these people these people are, are, I mean, the Bible says God so loved the world. It don't say God so loved the world except for this person and that person and the other person. God so loved the world. And God don't hate anybody. And these people are disgusting. And, you know, I mean, they're just, I, I can't tell you. I feel sorry for them because they're they're self deluding. I mean, evidently got so full of venom and hate and stuff, they're just self deluding. And I wouldn't be surprised one of these days they're going to step over the line and go someplace like that's not a place to be going right now.
0: Oh no, no, it's not I, a
1: place to be going to. Blacksburg, no. Virginia, is not a place to go to with anything to do with hate. People are praying there. Franklin Graham was there. Uh, I think the last couple of days praying with the kids. It's it's so wonderful to see prayer happen on a college campus. Total unabashed prayer going on on a college campus. And I wish it could happen before the fact, but it didn't. But at least it's happening now. And these people are going to show up. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you know, one of these days somebody's going to do something to those people.
0: Oh, somebody's somebody will scope them.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's just going to happen and. And it's not right to do anything to them. I don't want to see them. I don't want to see them harmed. But they are certainly putting themselves in harm's way. And you know, it's just they're so disgusting. They're just, and then they're bringing those children up in that same, you know, that same hateful way that, that they are. And it's just it's so wrong. And I deny these people. I totally deny that they have anything to do with the kind of Christianity that I believe in.
0: Boy, you're a passionate dude.
1: Uh, well, hey. I, you know what? I just
0: called a 70-year-old a dude. I am so sorry about that. No, 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 no. no. I am a dude, man. Hey, man. <laughs>
1: okay.
0: I just forgot where I was there. No, anymore. no, no. You call me a
1: dude. That's okay. okay.
0: Well, now that your blood pressure is through the ceiling, I, I love your passion. Any regrets for the things that you have said or done or stood for over the years?
1: Things that I've said, certainly. I mean, I've I've said hurtful things. I come from a, a Jim, Co, Jim Crow background. I was raised in a, in a very prejudiced South. I was born in 1936 and that's how society was. And I came up thinking if you weren't a wasp, that you weren't, you know, that, that there's something wrong with you. You were second class citizen or something. And I had to come through that by myself. That, uh, as I grew up and I said, wait a minute, hold on. You know, uh, because somebody's skin is different from mine, don't mean they're not as good or better than I am nobody is, is you know no I'm not better than anybody, and you know it's it's racial things are, are so they're they're so wrong it's so and to look back and see where I've come from and how i felt and you almost felt like it was an obligation to feel that way because that's how, that was the pressures of society at the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was, it was so wrong, and, I'm, and, and I regret ever being that way. And I, I stand here making excuses for it, but there were excuses for it. There were reasons for it, I should say. But, uh, yeah, and I've done things that I'm certainly not proud of. Uh, and Uh But, you know, I found out one of the things I think if you change something back in your life, it would change something on this end of your life. So maybe we're just better off to apologize and ask forgiveness for the things that we've done wrong, and just you know, cowboy let them hide. up,
0: cowboy up, and move on.
1: Cowboy up and move
0: on, exactly. Grown-up country. What makes country life country? Uh, this book is is a great little read, folks. Uh, Blackberry pie on the window ledge, the grand old Opry on the radio, Sunday dinners on the table, family swinging on the front porch after a hard day's work. It's all part of the country way of life. And I remember going up with my family, my mom and dad, up to some of our aunts' and uncles' farms, and, and the same scene that you're talking about, everyone getting together. I remember my my aunt's pies. I mean, they made some of the best <laughs> pies. My goodness. I haven't had a pie since like that. You know what oh, I'm saying? they don't make them like that. No. It's a crime, really.
1: Close they used to use lard and stuff in them. See, that's what made them good. <laughs> now you got to use tofu or something. Yeah, you know? yeah right.
0: Not my pie, baby. Yeah. Uh, it, it, this is this is a warm read. That's how I can describe this. This is a warm well, read. Thank you. Growing up country by Charlie Daniels. What makes country life country? Just before we let you go, can can you maybe just tell us a part of that book that stands out the most for you?
1: You know, I enjoyed Kix Brooks' uh, piece about uh, fishing with his granddaddy because I went fishing with my granddaddy, and I I, I loved my granddaddy. I loved my. Uh, yeah, he was just bigger than life character to me, and had such an influence on my life. And I think evidently that uh, Kix felt pretty much the same way about his granddaddy. And, and he's uh, Kix has got a, a talent for writing that I didn't, I never knew about until he did this piece.
0: Oh, this might uh, flush something else out. of it. Let's probably. hope
1: so. Yeah, that's right
0: Well, Charlie Daniels, it's uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. It's an honor. I, I have appreciated your career, your life, your music, your words, your writing, and most of all. I think your, uh, your simple faith, you, you do have that childlike faith.
1: Well, Drew, I have thoroughly enjoyed talking to you, and let's just do this again sometime. I appreciate it. God bless. Bye-bye. When the devil finished, Johnny said, well, you're pretty good, old son. But sit down in that chair right there and let me show you how it's done. Fire on the mountain, run, boys, run. The devil's in the house of the rising sun. Chicken in the bread pan, picking out the.
0: Like what you've heard? Listen again online at DrewMarshall.ca.